Father, we do give thanks this evening for your word that we have received through your son, Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that in light of that truth that we will dive into this evening, that you um, would encourage your people here at Fisherville tonight. And Father, I pray that you would use this lowly preacher to proclaim your truth found in this word tonight and that you would receive all the glory from it. And we humbly ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So in the middle of Salt Lake City, Utah, sits the epicenter of Mormon life. Covering about a five-block span in downtown, Temple Square is full of historic sites, uh, beautiful gardens, restaurants, museums, interactive exhibits, exquisite architecture. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has countless numbers of young ladies who are on site, who come from all over the world. Um, they are ready to guide visitors around the grounds and share with them both the history and the theology of the church in more than 40 languages. So after one visit, if you have ever had the privilege of going out there, it is not hard to see why it is one of the most visited and one of the most popular tourist sites in the United States. A few years ago, we um, were able to take some teams out there, and I was privileged to be able to be a part of two of those teams. And before we really got our week going, we made it a point to go visit Temple Square just so that our groups would be able to get a context and a better understanding of who it would be that we would be serving over the course of the week. So according to the church's website, everything is, quote, centered on the church's mission to worship Jesus Christ and serve God's children. That is what they seek to do. So over the course of those two years and those two tours that we took around Temple Square or that I was able to take out uh, around Temple Square, <clears throat> our got, tour guides were very friendly, hospitable, and they encouraged questions. So along the way, as they told us about the history, they told us about the theology, it was an open dialogue. We would ask questions, they would give us answers. But as we processed this information and continued to ask questions related to Mormon theology and traditions, inevitably, it always ended up coming to this question. How do you know if you've done enough to get to heaven? One year in particular, the sisters that we had were left speechless and then quickly changed the subject. But the response from the second year is the one that often replays over and over in my mind. One sister who just sounded exhausted by the time that we were done, all she could muster out was tell us, we do our best and we hope that God takes care of the rest. You see, everyone faces moments in life when our worldview, our theology is put to the test. To put it another way, we face moments that expose the strength and the stability of our foundation. If I could use an analogy right here, if we build a house on a foundation that has Jesus that does not match the Jesus of the Bible, then inevitably that house is going to crumble. Likewise, or on the other side, if our house is built on the Jesus of the Bible, then we can know for certain that when those moments come, it will hold strong our foundation that is 
And that brings us to this pivotal moment here in our letter to the Colossians, verses 6 and 7. These are two of the verses that are probably the more important uh, verses here in this letter for a couple of reasons. Number one, these two verses provide a summary of everything that has been written up to this point. Paul is preparing the Colossians for what is coming by reminding them of the strength and the stability of their foundation that they have in Christ. Secondly, these two verses are going to set the stage for what is to come in the remainder of the letter. So what we know of the Colossian church is that they were facing a threat of false teaching, but it is fascinating and interesting to me that up to this point, Paul has not directly addressed it. He doesn't minimize the threat that is presented to them by the false teachers, but rather what he is doing is emphasizing the supremacy of Christ over everything else. And more so than that, Paul is going to use a variation of the phrase in him, that is Christ, seven times up to this point. Four of those come in chapter one. The other three come uh, in chapter 2 up to verse 7, which we'll look at tonight. And that doesn't even count the other eight that are in the remainder of the letter that we have yet to get to. But why would Paul go to great lengths to use this tiny phrase so many times? I believe it's because he understands that there are big implications that come from it. You see, he implies that the Colossians being in Christ now share in the power and authority of Christ. And so our main point of the passage is this. Since the Colossians have received Christ as Lord and placed their faith in him, they can confidently continue on in their faith in Christ, submitting to his lordship with thanksgiving. And that brings us to <clears throat> the first part of verse 6, where we will see a reminder of what it is that they have received. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So when he begins his summary of what he has already written, he reminds the Colossians of what they have received. And the word here for receive is significant. Typically, when Paul uses the word, he is referring to the receiving or accepting of the, the Christian tradition about the message of the gospel and of Christ. So to put it another way, it's the receiving of divine truth through divine revelation by messengers sent from God. A good example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the first four verses where Paul tells the Corinthian church, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Skip ahead a little bit. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It is also what the Colossians have received as well through the faithful witness and ministry of Epaphras. Chapter 1, 5b through 7 verses, this is what it says. It says, "...of this you have heard before in the word of truth." 
The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Skipping ahead a little bit, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then verses 21 to 23, it's all over chapter 1. He is reminding them of what it is that they have received. Those verses, And you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So typically when Paul refers to the word receive, this is what he means, a reception of the gospel message. But the word receive in verse 6 actually takes it a step further and implies so much more than just merely accepting this tradition, this gospel of Christ. And we're going to see that with the way that Paul combines the names of Christ, Jesus, and Lord. He tells them, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Nowhere else does Paul use this exact combination of names and articles. Just expanding to the rest of the New Testament, you're not going to find this combination anywhere else, only in this particular verse. The combination of names and articles here are a summary of the high Christology of the letter. The letter is Christ-centered because that is the threat that is coming from the false teachers and the false teaching seeking to minimize the significance and the supremacy of Christ. So Paul is very specific when he tells them, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And this is a summary of that wonderful passage in chapter 1 in verses 15 through 20 where he says that Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is what Paul is summarizing when he tells them, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. It escalates the importance of what they have received. Basically what he is telling them, what you have received is not just some made-up story that was presented to you and you thought, okay, I can get with this. No, it's so much more than that. When they received this message, they received the one who is the very essence of the Christian tradition, Christ himself. 
Think with me for a moment about what all it means to actually receive Christ Jesus the Lord. They have received Him as Christ, the Messiah that was written about and prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament. He is God's anointed prophet who spoke with authority on all matters pertaining to life, to death, heaven, hell, and a whole host of other topics that we could elaborate on. He is God's anointed priest who mediates between God and man. He offers the the blood sacrifice which the holiness of God demands as the means of approaching Him. But unlike the Old Testament prophet, the priests who offered the blood of animals, uh, who had to offer those sacrifices for their own sins as well for the sins of the people, He has offered His own blood as the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is also God's anointed king who will one day every enemy will bow before him as king of kings and lord of lords. They have received Christ. But they have also received Jesus, this one who is called Emmanuel or God with us, who was born of a virgin, who lived life like you and I, experienced all the things that you and I experienced, who endured all the sufferings that we endure, and yet went through it all without sin. This is the one who would be betrayed by one of his own, be condemned for something he never did, experience torture he didn't deserve, and be hung on a cross to die in a place that was meant for us to satisfy the wrath of the Father that we brought on ourselves. This is the one who would be buried and rise again on the third day, thus eliminating the sting of death forever for all who would place their trust and faith in Him. But they have also received the Lord, the one who is absolutely sovereign as creator over the universe and ruler over all that exists. The one who made us knows everything about us, whom we are to obey and submit to because his commands are perfect, right, and for our good. This is the one whom the Colossians have received. And if you are sitting here tonight and you are a Christian, this is also the one in whom you have received. This is the one that they will need in order to thwart the offensive threat that is posed to them by the false teachers. But it is also a reminder to them that if they give in to the false teachers and abandon the gospel of Christ Jesus the Lord, then they would be abandoning the message of the gospel that Christ's work is sufficient and supreme. So if the roundabout way of telling them to continue in what they have received is not received, Paul goes on to tell them directly. So the second thing that we see in verse 6 is the call to persevere. So what are the Colossians to do in light of receiving this message, this hope of the gospel of Christ Jesus the Lord? He tells them, so walk in him. As we mentioned earlier, this phrase, so walk, into, so walk in him or in him, um, is mentioned numerous times, but this is also the first command that comes in the letter, halfway through 
chapter 2. So it kind of begs the question as to why here? Why now? What is the significance of placing it at this pivotal moment? I think we find our answer back in chapter 1, and specifically, lost my place. Verse 9. So back in chapter 1, as soon as word reaches Paul of their faith, and that it is growing and it is producing fruit, he begins to pray for them. But not only that, he also specifically prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's, not Paul's, let's get that one straight, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So before Paul tells them what to do, he actually continues to build on that doctrinal foundation that was already laid. The more spiritual wisdom, the more knowledge, the more understanding that we gain should actually lead us to live lives that line up with what we actually confess to believe and to know. It's not that they were not doing this already, but rather Paul is emphasizing that this is the way that you persevere. This is how you walk in him on a daily basis. This is what it means to live in faith, to trust in, submit to, and worship Christ as Lord. What if we actually approached the relationships that we have with our brothers and our sisters in Christ this way? Do we pray and give thanks for the faith of our brothers and sisters? Do we pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and have all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Do we ask the Lord to grant them all of this so that they would walk in a manner worthy of Him? And then in turn, do we actually seek to follow through on that? Because that's what Paul actually does. He prays for them because of what he has heard about their faith, but he doesn't just stop there. He sends them a letter to encourage them to keep on going. He sends them a letter to encourage them to continue growing in that faith. Do we do that for one another? Do we seek to build the doctrinal foundation of others and encourage them to walk in that? Do we do this for ourselves? Is this the prayer for our own life? So one of the things that I, I get to do is, is coach high school baseball. Uh, and so the joy of helping these guys develop in their skills, pursue their dreams and goals that they have for themselves is a lot of fun. And so each year, each year the team is unique. There's different dynamics. Some years teams are more experienced. We have older guys. Some years like this year that wear on me and stress me out <laughs> because they are full of younger and experienced guys with only like three or four key experienced guys. But those years are actually fun, even though they stress me out, because this is what happens. And this is what I've seen play out over the course of the past couple of months. And even over the course of this past weekend, even though we went 0 for 3, and I was frustrated on the ride home, but when I got back home and I was sitting down and I was thinking about this, 
these experiences kept popping into my mind. So what has been fun for me is watching the older guys pour into the young ones, building into the knowledge and skills that they already have as younger players. And when they've gotten a taste of what varsity high school baseball is actually like, they realize, yikes, this is rough. But those older guys have seen their skills, they've seen their knowledge, and they're like, hey, look, man, just keep doing what you're doing. It's there. The knowledge is there. The skill is there just to continue, develop, continue to grow. And eventually, it's not going to be as rough as you think it is. Eventually, it's going to pay off. Eventually, fruit is going to come. So when I go through seasons like this one where, yes, the winds don't come as much as you would like to, I see older guys pouring into younger guys, developing their skills, encouraging them to keep going even when moments are rough. And I think to some degree that this is what is actually going on here with Paul, and this is what he's getting at. He hears about the excitement, the fruit, the growth of these younger Christians at this church, and he says, keep going. Keep going. He encourages them, and he wants to take advantage of this opportunity for, for them to keep going because that's what they're already doing. They've already gained spiritual maturity. They're already producing fruit. So keep pursuing that. So the first thing that we saw was a reminder of what they had received, and secondly, a call to persevere in what they had received. And finally, we're going to see the characteristics of their perseverance or the walk. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So in verse 7, we see four participles that should characterize our walk. Rooted, built up, established, and thanksgiving. There's an interesting dynamic here because the first three participles are written in the past tense, implying that this is a work that God has already done. God is the one who has rooted them in Christ. It is God who has built them up in Christ and established them in the faith. And it was all because of His grace as they believed. This is important because diminishing the, import, the, diminishing the person and the work of Christ puts the burden squarely on the individual, which the scriptures tell us that even the best works that we have to offer are filthy rags. But on the flip side, if the person and the work of Christ is sufficient for the initial rooting, building, and establishing of faith, then the second aspect of this dynamic found in the participles is that Christ's work is sufficient for each day, each and every day of the Christian life. So there's a present tense aspect in the wording. Maybe it's just me, but even after becoming a Christian, I still sometimes feel that temptation to do the work of the Christian life on my own as if the gospel wasn't more than sufficient. 
I need to be reminded of that. You need to be reminded of that. The Colossians needed to be reminded of that. The Christian life is one of continual dependence upon the work of God through Christ that initially saved us and is continually saving us. That's why in Matthew 11, Jesus can say to his audience that we're facing the continual pressure of religious legalism from the Pharisees, hey, come to me, all you who labor heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's dive into these characteristics of perseverance just a little bit more. The first one, rooted in him. So the first characteristic comes in the form of an agricultural metaphor. So in order for a tree to live and to flourish, it is dependent upon good soil and its roots. So similarly, the Christian is dependent upon the rich soil of the gospel and Christ to live the Christian life. When faith has its beginning, you are immediately rooted in Christ. There is an initial rooting. And God's word then becomes the food that supports your root system and allows you to grow deeper and deeper. If I plant a tree at my house in the best location where it will flourish, then there's no reason for me to move it at all if it's growing and flourishing. To do so would put that tree at risk of death. Likewise, if a Christian is already planted in Christ, rooted in Christ, then to remove ourselves from that rich soil of the gospel and of Christ is to risk certain death. The second one, built up in him. So this second characteristic is an architectural metaphor. So at first thought, it could seem as if Paul is offering a different way to walk in Christ, but I actually think that this one is just a different way of thinking about that same point that he makes with the first participle. The higher a building is built, the stronger the foundation needs to, needs to be. So I think a good way to blend these two together is to picture a treehouse. In order to build a tree house, you need a strong tree with roots that are deeply secure and a solid foundation. The stronger the foundation, the stronger the root system, and the strength and the sturdiness of the tree, the more elaborate that you can make your tree house, you can build. If any part of that foundation or root system is weak, the more susceptible the tree and the tree house is to being blown over or collapsing. Likewise, for a Christian to move away from anything else other than the rock-solid foundation that is found in Christ would be deadly as well. There is risk of being tossed to and fro by every cultural fad that comes around. Third, being established in the faith. So the third characteristic actually describes the result that comes from the first two that we just looked at. So being established implies that there is nothing else that you need. God has already established the Colossians 
in the faith when they believed and by sticking to their roots and being built up, they will continue to be established in the faith. And this is all just as you were taught. So between the third and the fourth characteristic of perseverance, there's this phrase that we find, which actually takes us back to the beginning of verse 6, making it the second time that Paul explicitly reminds them that they have received the true gospel. You could also argue that within each phrase, in a way, they've also been reminded that they have received the gospel. It is all over these two verses. So why is it necessary for us as Christians that what we have believed and received is authentic and real? That why is it necessary to be reminded of that? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one is because we tend to forget and we need to be reminded. But also, there is a war that takes place on the grounds of our hearts every day between our spirit and our flesh. The old self fighting the new self. Just because we have been made new creations in Christ doesn't mean that we will be spared from the fight against sin and Satan. There is an already but not yet aspect to this. We are freed from the power of sin and Satan, but we are not yet freed from its presence, which is why we need to be reminded that we already have what it takes to press on. So we walk, so we run, we do whatever it takes and trust that the one who has established you and I in the faith will sustain us until we cross the finish line. And all of this leads to the fourth and the final characteristic, which is thanksgiving. All of this should lead to an abundance of thanksgiving. This is the second time that Paul mentions thanksgiving in the letter. The first one came in chapter 1 when he was thankful for the Colossians themselves, thankful for their faith. The second one is here. The third is in chapter 3, and the other one is in chapter 4. But why does he mention it multiple times? Because growth in godliness is fueled by thanksgiving. When you are constantly aware of what it means to be rooted, to be built up, to be established in Christ, you can't help but sing praises of thanksgiving. In other words, thanksgiving is your offensive weapon in the call to persevere. And may it lead our hearts to sing every day these wonderful words. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. And when that race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Friends, this is why we persevere. This is why these two verses are where they are. For Paul to tell them to keep going.
Rest in this glorious truth, come what may. Let's pray. Father, may these words be the song of our heart. May we cling to the truth that you have said you will keep each and every one of your children until they are safely home with you forever. Father, this race is a grind. Things are not as they should be. We are surrounded by reminders of brokenness on a daily basis, whether in our own lives, our own context, or whether we turn on the news. But Father, we cling to the hope of your word that tells us that one day, all the broken things are going to be made new. That one day, not only will we be freed from the power of sin and Satan, but we are also going to be freed from its presence. And in that joy, we are going to be able to sing and to shout with one another before your throne. So Lord, I pray tonight that as we go home, as we go through this week, that we would recall these wonderful words here in Colossians 6 and 7. That we would walk in you. That on a daily basis, you would continue to root us, continue to build us up and establish us. But more importantly, Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to abound with thanksgiving because of the sufficiency and the supremacy of your son's work. That is what we pray this this evening. Amen. You are dismissed.